Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher. Today, we are going to talk about how service leads to fulfillment through adventure, of course. I've always heard how the key to meaning and purpose in life is service, but sometimes that's hard to grasp and even harder to fully live. Today's guest is going to help us break it down and show us the way forward through stories of his truly extraordinary stories of service and adventure. Nick Beasley is our guest, and he's a lifelong learner, competitor, and partner to those who are lucky enough to encounter him. Born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia, Nick has a BA from Hamden Sydney College and an MBA from Wake Forest University. He's experienced many careers, including Assistant Dean of Admissions at Hamden Sydney College, Senior Field Director for Rivers of the World, Infantry Officer and Special Operations Officer with the U.S. Army. Most recently, he's worked in sales and service management positions in the equipment industry. And these opportunities have taken Nick to Belize, Brazil, Guatemala, Iraq, and Afghanistan, plus many locations throughout the U.S. He is eager to note that he is happily married to his wife, Kitty, and they live with their two daughters in Columbia, South Carolina. So Nick describes himself this way. Whether it was my leading exploratory trips into the jungles of Belize for a nonprofit organization after college, deploying to active combat zones with the Army, or learning how to support highly technical fields in the private sector, throughout my professional careers, I have consistently challenged myself to continuously learn, compete at the highest levels, and partner with those around me. In my first call with Nick, I was struck by the way he used a spirit of service to connect with people in a way that has expanded his own awareness, resulting in a more rich experience of life. And I'm so excited for him to share this formula with us today so we can all share in the deep levels of fulfillment that he's been able to garner. Nick, welcome to the campfire. All right, man. Thanks, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Oh, man. I'm so excited. I was just so uh, inspired by that first conversation and I think what we're getting ready to talk about here. Um, I think we should just start with adventure and maybe you could share a little bit about who who Nick Beasley is and, and how you developed that early spirit of adventure. I, I'd, I'd like to say I've always been a rambunctious child, but I was a, <laughs> I was the second second son who watched my brother make plenty of mistakes. So I, I sort of grew up kind of a quiet, reserved, uh, introverted kid. Um, but but really, I think when I'm going to Hampton Sydney College uh, at, after after high school, really gave me a, a lot of leadership experience, a lot of exposure uh, to things around around the world, but also just within myself to to realize that I was a leader. I was somebody that could do more than I I, I thought initially, and really it that helped me sort of fan the flames of, of that adventure spirit to try to get out and and do things, help people and, and really, gosh, it's been it's 
it's been about 20, 20 some odd years at this point, but, but really developed me into who I am today. Yeah. So, so what were some of these early experiences that you had that, that really triggered it for you? I, I think again, fr- freshman year is always an interesting, interesting thing. You kind of float through, you kind of figure out like, Oh, I can, I can wake up when I want to wake up, go to bed when I want to go to bed. But I think the the first time I really, really realized I was on my own, um, might've been driving to Alaska and living up there for a summer, but that, that's another story. But, but really the, the formative one was after my sophomore year, I performed in the uh, Edinburgh French festival over, over in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I was a, a history fine arts major, which, which was just a way to make being a theater major sound like it was a real major. Uh, but, but I performed over there and going over to Edinburgh French festival for two weeks and performing uh, was the first time I'd ever left the country. First time I'd ever really travel is, is the first time I ever drank hot tea before. Um, <laughs> so it was, it was a learning experience, but the professor that took us over there, his, his advice really resounded with me and stuck with me for a long time, which was take advantage of this opportunity, enjoy your time. No one else is going to do it for you. And, and that was, it was kind of your, you feel like you're abandoned on an Island where like no one, no one's going to make sure you have fun in Edinburgh, Scotland. No one's going to keep you from just eating McDonald's every day. No one, no one's going to keep you, from just sort of being your own reserve self, so you've got to you've got to go out and do your own thing, and that was that that sort of guided me through that whole experience of going and eating local foods, going and meeting the local people, uh, getting a chance to get out there and, and realize that I'm the one that's in charge of everything I, I want to do. If I want to do something, I need to raise my hand, volunteer, and go do it. I can't I can't wait for the the ghost of the machine to come pluck me up and, and go have fun uh, with what I was going to do. So that, that trip to Edinburgh um, and performing over there and, and going international, international where everyone spoke English, um, despite what they say about the Scottish sometimes. So I think <laughs> it, was, it was an easier sort of dipping my toe into the world where, where I, I had to take advantage of, of my surroundings and the people I was with. Yeah. Okay. That, that one's worth repeating. I think it was take your time, enjoy yourself because nobody's going to do it for you. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. And what's cool, like we were talking, um, we've talked a couple of times and um, it wasn't until just a few minutes ago that you shared that one with me. And I'm just curious, like, you know, that's what's fun about this process is you kind of start revisiting, like, you know, what stories do I want to tell when we're going over this? And, you know, that one, that one sort of hit you, I guess, pretty recently. And I'm just, I'm curious, kind of like, you know, what, what was the before, what, what was Nick like before that? And then that seemed like that was kind of a trigger point for you. Well, and, and even another story I'd completely forgotten about as well. I remember the year before that, um, I had a buddy who said, Hey, let's, let's drive to Alaska and live up in Alaska for the summer. And I, I didn't know if I really wanted to, but I figured I'd ask my parents. And I remember them, them saying, yeah, you're, you're 18 going on 19, do whatever you want. Like you're on your own. Like we're not going to pay for it, but you're like, whatever you want to do, do it. And that was sort of the, I think the catalyst that made me realize like, oh, I'm, I'm a grown up um, and being sort of on my own. But then with, with even, even volunteering to do theater, that was something I'd always wanted to do. I'd, I'd always wanted to act or do, do something different. Uh, and being in that environment where I could raise my hand and say, I want to, I want to give this a shot. And then doing a summer school course where I, I got to go, go to Edinburgh, that, that, that was, that was letting me know, Hey, the things that you thought were too far away. The things that you couldn't, you couldn't do are actually within perfect grasp. You just have to reach out and do it. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I love this. So you've kind of, you've kind of planted the seed that nobody's gonna, 
nobody's going to enjoy life for me. Right. So, and this is sophomore year in college and you actually stayed at that college for work after graduation. And so tell us about sort of that transition and then, um, and, and then your involvement with rivers of the world. Yeah. And so I said, if anyone's a fan of the podcast, they've, they've probably heard Wes Lawson. Uh, Wes is a good friend and we, we both went on uh, a service trip to Belize with rivers of the world. This was a, as I said, listen to Wes's podcast. It's great. Um, Episode 55. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> but we, we went to Belize low, low expectations other than we were expecting an adventure or something different, uh, but sort of carried those themes along with me. Of like, let's, let's do something. Let's connect with people. Let's find a way to help out. And so got involved doing service trips uh, with that. I said, I, I love my parents. I think they helped me with that first trip. The second trip came around and said, I really want to do this again. And again, they said, well, good luck. Like, <laughs> for it. So I, I took the money I, I made as a, being a resident advisor and, mm-hmm. and working in the health center and, and paid my way. And that was another another sort of realization of I, I can I can do this on my own. Um, I, I don't need somebody else to pay for it. I can I can raise the money and I can go enjoy this trip and enjoy that. So we started doing service work uh, where we would go. We'd go to Belize um, and help help folks out in, in that part of the world. And, getting involved with rivers of the world um, was a really neat organization and their whole philosophy is go up remote river basins uh, around the world. They started doing work in the Congo, uh, but, but go up these places where most people don't go. There aren't roads. That's why you take a river and you, you meet the people as far up the rivers you can get. And you, you show up and say, Hey, what do you need help with? Uh, their, their saying was it's, it's your people, it's your village, it's your country, but together we can make it our problem. And for me, that, that that has been a guiding principle really for me going forward is is meet people where they are it's it's a neat adventure it's a neat adventure to go to belize uh, it, was, it was neat to go to brazil go to other places but but the the real challenge was to go there and find out what they needed uh, i'd often joke with people you know we when we go on these these service trips or mission trips whatever you want like in a lot of ways you want to sort of show up with a, a coke machine and and in a hamburger and say hey here here you go here here you you've got what, what you needed a lot of times like now we don't that's not what we need like what we what we need is like running water or what we need is sanitation or what we need is the building um and so meeting the people and, and having to actively ask them you know what what can we help you out with and not not bringing your baggage and your assumptions that you just need direct tv that's what you need if you can just watch the, the world cup that, that that's what you need and that, that that's a silly thing i think we we get in trouble doing a lot of times assuming we know what people need but but Rivers of the World really helped me with that, helped uh, me sort of get that that understanding that meet people where they are, find out how you can help, and together we can make it our problem. And that was a really rewarding part of those those two uh, trips I went to Belize with Rivers of the World while I was in college. And then while I worked for the school, uh, I, I went on several trips again, uh, leading those those trips. And then I spent the next three years after uh after leaving Hampton, Sydney, uh, working for Rivers of the World as a senior field director, uh, co- doing a lot of coordination, sending people to uh, to other places around the world, but also going and finding work uh, on my own and, and actually going going in that dugout canoe, crossing the river, going to a remote village and, and asking that question, you know, what, what's the biggest problem? How, how can we help? 
Yeah. Nick, I'm curious because you shared with us, you know, you did this trip to Alaska and then you went over to Edinburgh and, you know, you kind of developed the spirit like nobody's going to live life for me. But how do you go from that to this sort of mindset of service and service in these remote locations? I think part of it is, like, so we we think of things as being exotic. Um, you think of Edinburgh as this, it's silly old. I mean, you got you got castles and other stuff. Like, it, it's such an old country, and so you sort of build up this mythology in your head of what what is over there. Uh, same thing with with going to the jungle. You build up this sort of the mythos of oh, oh, this is this is the jungle where panthers are jumping out, and I mean, you hear the howler monkeys, which are terrifying. I mean, but but you you sort of build up in your mind that this is crazy. But when you when you meet people over there, they're they're just people like you. Like in, in Scotland, like I said, they they mumble worse than I do, but but they're they've got all the same problems. They they just they want to get through their day um, and whatnot. When you go to the jungle, like that's just their woods. Like and and growing up in the the mountains of of Virginia and running around the woods that was that was one of the things that struck me going to belize and going to the jungle where you you could walk across the border there was no border it was just it was just jungle but that's just their woods uh, what you see as a dogwood tree or an oak tree they they see as a mahogany tree uh or something and so they they don't see it as special they they look at us say how how on earth do you live where you live Uh, and so once you start communicating with people and that that's where meeting people where they are is really something that that gave me that perspective of you know what like we're we're all we're all human uh we we all have our faults we all have our our uh, benefits but we we need to meet each other and and, and learn from each other in that sense and, and when you're trying to get that equal back and forth of learning where you are and what's what's unique about where you are i think that's really where you get that benefit and that growth and that that's that's what sort of focused me on that service where I, I know I can put myself in an uncomfortable situation and go work with individuals and go go be with people around the world and, and find a way to to help them. And that that's that's Hampton City has a big service component as far as being a college and trying to trying to create um, graduates that, that care about service. But that's exactly what Rivers of the World is about. And, and I, I knew I knew when I left Hampton, Sydney, that everything I wanted to do had to had to have some service component to it, I had to be serving serving people and helping people in one way or the other to really feel that fulfillment. And I, I think being in Belize, being in Edinburgh, being in Alaska and sort of those experience, experiences are really what fermented that for me. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. Did you know that the members of my real estate team, W Realty Group, are listening to their own voices that call to adventure by setting big goals. Some of those goals include planning trips to Bali and the kingdom of Bhutan, buying investment homes and running the Chicago Marathon. At W Realty Group, we support and encourage these big goals and wanna help turn them into reality. We're currently looking to add new members to the team. If you know a great real estate agent in the Charlotte, North Carolina area that would benefit from being part of our team, please send a text, an email, or give me a call. And know that when you support W Realty Group, you're also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah, it really captivated me in our in our first conversation when you when you kind of brought that to my attention. Just this idea of basically like using service to connect with people because when you show up in a spirit of wanting to help, it's disarming, right? That you're you're no longer a threat. And I, I definitely want to get into that because that's a theme throughout 
pretty much your whole life. Um, I do want to point out, I love that you use the example of like mythology and talking about how like Edinburgh is this old place. Like we build up these stories in our heads about the jungle and about, you know, different places. And I feel like that's where like a lot of the fear and doubt comes, comes in because we do attach to those, like, like you said, mythologies, like these stories that we tell ourselves about that place, which is just home to the people that live there. I love that you said that. That was, that was super cool. And I think, you know, on this podcast, a, a huge theme is, is helping people to listen to the voice inside that calls them to adventure and acknowledging that a lot of times we do experience fears and doubts that keep us from crossing the threshold and taking that adventure. And I think that you just hit it because the mythology and the stories we tell ourselves are a lot of what cause those fears that keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And breaking, breaking down those barriers is, is, is a big thing. I, I, I know we will probably eventually get to the army, but I remember even, even going into the army, my, my brother joined the army before me and, and I was getting ready to go to basic training. And I, I knew I was gonna have to do a PT test. And so I was like, Hey, what, what's the secret to doing more pushups or more sit-ups or not? like, is, is there a technique I need to do? Like, do I need to wiggle my body the right way? And remember my brother was saying, yeah, the secret to doing more pushups is do more push-ups. The secret <laughs> is doing like there's there's no secret. Like you build up this idea, this wall that like, okay, this is this is how this is how there must be some magical thing. It's like no, yeah. you just do it. Like everyone, people have done it before you. They'll they'll do it after you. You just do it. There's no magic pill. You just get after it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love that. Okay, so yeah, I I want to get to the army for sure. Like, could we just talk about um, maybe a couple stories of your time in Belize? Maybe kind of. Yep. Um, some of the experiences that you've had there. Yeah, I think one of the one of my fondest memories in Belize uh, was was Creek Asarco. It's a little remote village where where I I found we found a, a partner that needed help. They they didn't have a hard structure uh, building. It was it was a church slash community center, and so they they wanted to build build a place where they could worship, but also where they could have meetings, uh, also they could take refuge from the storm. And so I I went down there, met with met with a, a guy who, who rode his bike 25 miles through a, a jungle jungle road, which is not much, not saying much. And it, it wasn't on mountain bike. It was, it was one of those like beach cruising bikes, like the one, one gear bike, but he, he rode that to meet me. We went ended up going to the village sort of seeing what needed to happen. And, and um, we, we ended up connecting a, a church with that, that community. So we actually raised the money for building a church, but we only raised enough money for a wooden structure. And so this is one of the, the learning experiences for me where we had this idea like, okay, we've got the, the money for lumber. We've got the money for gravel, the, the, the concrete, the tin or the zinc uh, for the roof. We've got all these, all the earmarks for what we need, but it's, it's not going to be a, a concrete block church. We just can't, we can't make that. Um, but that was sort of my mindset going, going down there. When I met with uh, Andres, our, our contact down there, and we started going around he he knew people and he knew ways he knew the government was going to come out there and build a bridge and so he knew how to get the transportation of all these materials to the jungle which was one of the biggest costs for free and so suddenly that that wooden church that they're going to build this wooden structure turned into a concrete block um really solid building and and for me that was recognizing you know i i had sort of my understandings my ideas and my thoughts of what was going to happen but if i hadn't stepped back and 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 partner with Andres and say, hey, this is this is our problem. It's not me coming in as a general contractor or project manager and, and telling you how it's going to work. But for him to, like, he 
he did it. And I remember when we when we opened that, we had a, an opening ceremony. Uh, like I said, I, he stood there next to me. I, I explained he was he was the reason we were able to do that. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the Americans that came and helped. It wasn't it wasn't the finances. It was them. And that's that's always the big the big thing I tried to push and my understanding, but other other people that traveled is that I said you, you've got to you've got to humbly approach that these travel experiences and these these individuals and recognize like you might have an idea on, on how it works, but ultimately on the local level, they're they've got they know the efficiencies and they could figure that all out. So that that trip and that whole experience uh, going to a remote a remote uh, village uh, in the southern jungles of Belize and seeing seeing them being able to make something uh, more than what we'd intended really made me realize like it's it's that partnership uh, and it's working with people that makes the biggest difference. Yeah. So, okay. So in that partnership, can you talk a little bit about like first encounters with, with these, with people, right. With the yeah. people of that, that are, that are, you know, initially not like you, right. Like you show up, you're an outsider. They, they live there. Like, what is that initial encounter? Like you have, you have to just do it. I mean, you, yeah, I really have to just sort of stick your hand out and say, Hey, my name, my name's Nick. Uh, one of the things that I learned from uh, the founder of Rivers of the World, Ben Mathis, was always learn how to say hello, always learn how to say thank you, um, and try, like just try to learn the language. And if, if you can figure out how to say hello and thank you or goodbye, that that goes really far. And so being being a big bumbly white guy walking into a thatch root hut uh, and saying "shamsar quill," which is uh, "kechi mayan" for hello or "how are you," uh, people's eyes light up a little bit. And so if, if you try, um, if, again, if you meet people where they are, if you learn learn how to like kind of kid around and, and play with them, that's great. The other sort of rule I, I made up for myself, and especially Belize, um, most people speak English. Um, in the northern part, they speak Spanish. In the middle, it's kind of a, a Creole English, hard to understand. And then in the south, it's um, it's Mayan. But, but in school, everybody speaks or learns English. Um, and so I had the rule of the elbow. Uh, if you if you could find a kid that was at least as tall as your elbow, they they could translate for you. They they had enough schooling that they could they could speak English. And so you, if if you weren't making any headway with like a, a local person, uh, an elder, you grab a little kid and you say, "Hey, come here. I I, I, I need I, what is he saying?" And they they giggle and laugh. And I said, "Candy is is the great equalizer." Uh, <laughs> Candy so you, is the great equalizer. I love that. Uh, but yeah, always it's just being curious. That was for me. That was the big thing that helped me going into this this Mayan village, uh, where again most of the people spoke Kekchi Mayan, uh, and and so they could sort of sit there and stare at you. But you'd make jokes. I, I remember doing my little thumb trick once. And, um, oh yeah. Kids, kids love that. Uh, I had some elders come out of the out of the the woodwork and like, what are you doing? And I'd be like, oh no, it's 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 here, here's here's the secret. I don't want to freak anybody out. Um, but yeah, just having having fun, enjoying that, recognizing that that you're you're not you're not anyone special. You're you're there to learn from them, and and realize that you're getting as much out of this as they're getting out of it as well. And and having that humility, because uh, I, I jokingly say I'm the most humble person you'll ever meet. I know I'll defend that to, to anybody. But uh, <laughs> but but walking walking into a village, it's it's intimidating because you don't know the people, you don't know the language. But but walking in there and, and saying it's it's going to be me. Going back to that. That professor said, uh, "I enjoy enjoy your time. No one's going to do it for you." In those situations, like 
communicate. No one's going to do it for you. Find, yeah. find the way. And, and I've, I've found through my travels that I can, I can communicate people with people if I want to communicate with people. If you really want to communicate um, and you're meeting somebody where they are, like, you'll, you'll find a way. And like I said, you can, you can use big words, you can use little words, you can use body language, but, but learning how to say hello and thank you in, in their native tongue uh, is is really the best advice I have for people to to go go into those environments and, and try to succeed. Yeah, um, you said that 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 initial encounter it is there is intimidation there. Can you can you just speak to that real quick and how you get over like it's there but you get over it like how do you do it? Again, you you got to recognize and for well for for me those initial those first initial trips I was part of a group yeah. and then then suddenly I was a 22 year old, 23 year old flying to the jungles alone. And when, when it's just you, there, there is that sort of fight or flight and you, you've got to figure out like, this is going to happen. Um, and it's, it's intimidating to, to you, but again, sort of breaking down the mythology of it all, uh, talking to people, understanding the culture, uh, going to Edinburgh. One of the things that professor made us do was sort of study the culture and study the history. And so suddenly the things become familiar. Uh, if you, if you study the plants, study the, the language a little bit, again, it begins to break down and your, your ear will pick things up. You'll, you'll become more comfortable, uh, and, and recognize that you have that ability that I said, I, I turned, I turned into Mr. Nick people all over Belize. We like, Oh, Mr. Nick, Mr. Nick, uh, kids would call me Mr. Nick. Other people call me Mr. Nick. And, and again, I, I never, I'd never, that was the first time someone had really referred to me in, some type of sir environment, but you sort of recognize like you just got to do it. Uh, you, you got it in you. And at this point, there's no safety net. You gotta, you gotta jump. Uh, you gotta, you gotta make that conversation happen. Other, otherwise you're not going to, you're not going to get the the aid or the, the help for other folks. And that was, that was always a driving force. And I think that that helps the service component when you're there for a reason and you're not just there for vacation. You're not just there for, um, for the fun of it. Like you're, you're there to try to help. I, that, that's really something that, that pushed me through those doorways and, and, and made, made the challenges a little less, um, awkward or uncomfortable or insurmountable in that sense. And I mean, on the other side, they're intimidated too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where humor, um, people laugh all over the world. Uh, one, one of the little, little jokes, uh, as, as our kids would teach me Mayan, they're little ants in Belize, and then they're big ants. And and the little ants would bite you, like be, and the big ants would draw blood. Literally, like would draw blood when they bit you. And like you, if you had work, big work gloves on, you put them on your finger, and they, you could hear the mandibles like crunching, trying to oh. get through the leather. But but the little ants were called uh, sank, and the big ants were teken. And so the kids were teaching me all all the all the language. And, and if a kid is being kind of a punk. I, I could be like, sunk, 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 like, like an ant's trying to bite you or I'd be like, tekan, tekan. And then you sort of, and they'd be like, oh, okay. Like, so, and so they, they got the humor. They, they got the, the playfulness yeah. the same way you, you play with your kids and whatnot. I mean, that, that was, the, the kids are just as fun. Um, the three-year-olds are using machetes to cut the grass. That, that took some getting over, but, but people are people. Um, people want to have, make a joke. People, people want to, to laugh. Uh, and if, if you can find a way to laugh at your expense, uh, to make a joke. I remember being in Brazil uh, and to say thank you in Portuguese is obrigado. Uh, if it's masculine, it's I, I would say as, as a, a man, I'd say obrigado. But if, you, if you're a woman, you'd say obrigado. You, you use the feminine form. 
And so sometimes like around the kids, I'd make it, I'd, I'd say, obrigada. And they would just giggle because I was, <laughs> I was making a mistake. And so th that type of sort of just have fun with them, let, yeah. let them enjoy the joke. Uh, and that, that sort of killed the mythology of, of this big, awkward white guy that doesn't speak our language. I've been able to sort of say, okay, you're just, you're just a goofball like the rest of us. Um, you, you really are here to connect with us, uh, to eat, like sit at our table, to, to eat, like not, not to isolate myself, but really to, to em embrace the culture that, that, that allows you, I think, to get closer to people and actually, um, bridge those gaps. Yeah. And, and I can attest cause I've, I watched a few videos that, uh, that were on YouTube rivers of the world. And there's one in particular where you're riding a bike across a swinging bridge and like the bike kind of goes over the, goes over the side of the rail of the, <laughs> the rail. And you're just like laughing and having fun the whole time. And every single picture and video that I saw that had you in it, you're smiling. Yeah. Yeah, you got to. I mean, again, no, no one's going to do it for you. So if, if you're not having fun, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, even even in work, um, I, we we try to have fun in work. If, if if you're really miserable, like don't do it. But but yeah, that, that the swinging bridge incident in uh, in Belize was was interesting. Uh, machete on my my back and and yeah, I, I encourage y'all to go watch that video and watch me almost flip flip over the well almost. I did flip over the railing, but I, I caught myself and didn't fall fall to my death. But but yeah, that that was a near near brush with death. But it was a lot of fun. It's a, it was it was hysterical. Yes, I mean near near death. But the way that the video was portrayed, it's, it was funny. You yeah. guys did a good job of that. It was great. Okay, so Nick, take us. Um, how 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 did we go from you know Rivers of the World, this experience in Belize, and other experiences like it to the Army? It's not a huge leap. Um, it is that same service component. Yeah, I was I was in Chicago, uh, which which is a challenge within itself to go go to Belize uh, from Chicago and having to like not take a winter jacket to Belize. Yeah. Uh, made, made it challenging. And I, I remember waking up in a waking up in a hammock, uh, getting on a dugout canoe, riding down a river in the dark, and then going to bed in Chicago, mm. uh, where it was like negative 10 degrees so I mean, there, there are some weird stories that come out of that but but for me it was the it was the service component we we'd been in an active war for gosh eight years uh six seven eight years at that point uh again my my brother joined and he was telling me all these great stories about camping and, and whatnot and how, how fun the infantry was but but for me just hearing hearing people sort of be naysayers about people that join the army why why do we have people over there like it doesn't make any sense and for me the the service component was we need we need good leaders over there. If if these troubled individuals are the troubled individuals that we claim they are, or the people would say they are, then why why don't we send them better leaders? Uh, and so for me, it was it was that call to service. Like I, I want, I knew as a good leader, I, I knew I had a lot of um, things I could give people. And at that point, I was a resident head at the University of Chicago, um, making cookies for kids and picking out movies, uh, which was great. Like I had a lot of fun. I really enjoyed my time up in the, in the windy city. But, but for me, I knew there, there are soldiers out there in foxholes that, that needed somebody to, to sit with them and figure out what their biggest problem was. And when I decided to, to join and talk to my brother, I, I really wanted to enlist and be a sergeant, uh, go that route, the non, non-commissioned officer route. Uh, and he said, you know, we've got a lot of great, great sergeants. We've got a lot of great team leaders, squad leaders. Like, well, we, we need more better officers. That, that's what we need. And so that was, 
again, that, that sort of call to services. I, I want to go be that officer that that sits with the individual, sits with the guys in the foxhole and say, what what do you need? Like, again, the rivers of the world, like this is this can be our problem. Uh, and so I, I joined in 2008, um, spent about 15 months at Fort Benning doing basic training, officer candidate school, infantry training, um, and then went to Iraq. And, and so that within, I think, I think 15 months of joining, I was, I was in country in Iraq for, for 10 months. Um, and it really was a lot of that same, like who, who's going to do this when you're, when you're the officer, you don't have to do anything. You can be one of those officers that sort of shun like skirts responsibility and just waits to get promoted. But, but for me, from like the experience, like I, I needed to take advantage of that time. I needed to work with the individuals. I wanted to, I wanted to, to find out how I could serve and how I could, I could not just serve the soldiers, but help the people uh, in that country. Uh, at that point, at that point, it was not a very kinetic war. And so a lot of the stuff that was happening in Iraq in 2009, 2010 was much more, much more of what I was used to. It was, how do we help with infrastructure? How do we help with security? Uh, and so that, those same skills from the rivers of the world experience in Brazil and Belize and Guatemala was, was the same thing, going and, going and working with the local population saying, what do you need? Uh, we, we could give you Humvees, we give you gasoline. We, we, we had a laundry list of, of things we could provide but really, it was like my job as a, as a platoon leader was to go out and, and meet the local population where they were and say, what what do you need help with? How how can we be a partner in this process? And that 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 was a really rewarding experience. It was a challenging one, but it was, it was rewar rewarding. Man, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like yeah. the same Nick that went to Belize and said, what do you need? How can we help? You're basically just plugging into the same situation now in Iraq. Yeah. And I just wonder, like we talked about the mythology, right? The mythology of the jungle. Like, can you help us break down the mythology of of Iraq? It's it, it's another world. Uh, I mean that that is that is the reality. Um, like it, it's it's nothing nothing like this part of the world. But the people are the same. Like the people want to joke. People want to kid. Um, the people care more about security. Uh, we did one of the one of the one of the things we would always do is like, you know, how, how can we help? And security was one thing we they always needed help with. And it was the training. How do we train our soldiers to be better soldiers with these soldiers like America? But, but, but for them, it was like, you know, it was, how do we get girls like better education? How do we get better medicine? And we, I remember we did a combined medical engagement where we provided the security at the aid, aid station. So people felt safe to come into the aid station and get, get medical treatment from Iraqi uh, medical professionals as well as American medical professional professionals. And that was, it wasn't scary, but that was, that was one of the most stressful moments of, uh, when, when the gates were locked, when we said we're going to open at 10 AM, like there, there was a line of like mothers with, with kids out, out the really around the, the block. And I thought they were going to break down the fence because they were so eager to get this, this help. Uh, and that was something that they needed. And so we, they they knew they were going to be able to come and get get medical treatment from Americans from Iraqis, but also they it was going to be a safe environment where they didn't have to worry about um, any of the corruption or anything along those lines. So that 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 was a moment where you realize like moms are moms. Like, yeah. Moms are the same people all around the world. Like they're they're going to take care of their kids and they're they're going to stare down a a bull or somebody with a gun if if that means their kids are going to be safe. So that that was other. Sort of not otherworldly. That that sort of was the commonality. Um, but I also remember eating 
eating with the, the Iraqis. I, 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 for a while, about six weeks, I spent over sort of a combined base uh, where we lived and worked with the Iraqis. And, and they would get a big bowl of food, a, a big bowl of food. Um, and it's like rice and chicken and, and naan, like really, really good food. Like I, I really enjoy eating. I think if, if you like eating, that's, that's the best way, like find that local population yeah. and eat that. But I remember like they were just digging in with the hands. And for me, that was, that was not a, that was not something we do. I was, I was a big pork or spoon guy. Yeah. Um, but it was one of those things like, just do it, like find out how they do it, like find out the, the, the cultural way to do it. Like just, just in, embrace it and give it a shot. No, again, no one's going to make you do it. And that, that was, that was a moment where, again, sort of break down that barrier of like, why do I care how people eat or not eat? Like, let's just enjoy the fellowship, enjoy the food. And, and again, build that relationship where they, they don't see you as being like, Ooh, I don't, I don't want to touch that. Like if you're, if you're digging in and they're digging in then you're shoulder to shoulder with them, they're, they're excited. And, and they, they see you more as a partner that, that was one of the, the big lessons for me was just to be a partner of these folks. Like I said, there, there's a lot that's different. Dust storms are real. The heat is real. Uh, the desert is real. Uh, the, the threat is real. They're, they're, their propensity towards violence and comfort with it is is something that was was new to me. Uh, but but understanding the people at the, at the root of it all allows uh, really allowed allowed us to have a, a pretty pretty safe and pretty uh, uh, non-eventful deployment to Iraq because of that. And I, I don't take credit for that, but but that that certainly helped the way we were able to to meet people where they were and work with them. So they they saw us as a partner rather than uh, somebody that was coming in to tell them what they needed to do. Yeah. So I, I don't, I'm, what's kind of sitting with me right now is like in both of these environments, whether it was Belize or Iraq, in both situations, you kind of show up as a stranger and you leave as you call it a partner, you know, a friend, but there's like connection, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's human to human connection that happens and you, and you leave with like a level of trust, I guess, that wasn't there before. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you get emails every so often um, from folks. And so I'm, when you're in a deployed environment, you typically don't get out too much personal information. But but I, I remember when we were leaving, um, some of our Iraqi partners are like, you know, do you think you'll ever come back here on vacation? And it's kind of hard when you're you're holding an assault rifle and, and you're in full camo that it's like, I don't, I don't think I'm going to bring my family here, bud. But, but for them, like they, that was like, hey, we look forward to you coming back. Um, and, and there are some really amazing folks that I, I worked with uh, there, as well as Belize and around the world that that you keep up with. And it's it's rewarding to it's rewarding to see that you, you achieved a level of partnership that was not expected or it was not the norm, especially interpreters. I mean, if you just have to scratch the surface of um, sort of war stories to find some really amazing interpreting interpreter stories where folks bring them back to the state side. Uh, but th those are the folks that like they speak for you. They're they're your partner. Um, they they literally they, they sleep near you, so that you're you're always around them. Like they they become your closest ally in many many ways. It's it's so inspiring. Um, and and I'll I'll say I'll say it at the end too. But just sitting here, I'm feeling gratitude towards you. I just appreciate what what you've done for the country and just for for the people there. It's really it's it's really awesome. Can you take us to special operations in Afghanistan? Yeah, and so that. That was a second deployment. Like I said, in four years of being in the army, deployed for about 22 months of that. Um, but but that was a different war. Iraq was more 
kissing babies, providing infrastructure. Afghanistan is still much more of a kinetic war. Uh, the the threat posture and threat violence was was a lot higher. Um, but we were when we were deployed there for a year, we were attached to special operations, and and they they had a village stability operations program, which for me when I when we were first ramping up for our deployment, like it was rivers of the world in camouflage. Um, it was 100. percent we're going to go to a local village. We're going to we're going to find a way to uh, work with this local village. But but the first question we need to ask is like what they need, and and the big thing that was provided in Afghanistan was uh, security. They needed security and they needed training. So so special operations units would go embed within the the local population. They live with the local population. They'd eat. And they'd work with the local population. They train them up so they could build that partnership and that connection. Again, exactly what we did in rivers of the world and Belize, exactly what we were doing in, in Iraq, but but a much more deliberate process where we had about 56 different uh, little little units that went out with special operations to to work these in these villages and provide these villages with what they needed. And so that was that was a long 12 months. Uh, but but I, I think that was probably the best program the army had going because what it was trying to do is Connect the local local population up with the um, state government or provincial government, and and make sure that the government was working for themselves and the whole time partnering with them on a local level. So it, it wasn't it was not dependent upon U.S. forces. It was us training the local population so we we eventually could work our way out of a job and and we could walk away from Afghanistan. That's that that's another podcast. But but that was I I was overly excited about that deployment because of how much it reminded me of rivers of the world and i remember talking to our leaders about you know let me let me help explain sort of best practices things that we we can do better and sort of the mindset we need to be in because the infantry the infantry in a lot of ways can be a hammer and see the world as a nail and and the, the challenge with what rivers of the world did was you've got you've got to see everybody as as a person and, and you've got to meet them there um you've got to have the hammer if need be but but really you've got to work with them um, on a, on a local level. So that was, that was 12 months living, living in a much more hostile environment uh, than, than Iraq, but rewarding and all the same. Yeah. It's all the same. Yeah. It's, it's the same service. You're doing the same thing. You're showing up. And I love that, this, you know, you're asking the question, what do you need and how can we help in all yeah. of these situations? And just to sort of round this out and then, and then we can, I want to talk about this, the formula that I talked about in the, in the intro. Um, so you left the army and now you're still following your whole, um, life of service. Can you just kind of wrap this up there? Yeah. Like I said, you, you, I think you put a nail on, nail on the, the head as far as what, what I've been doing my whole life without me realizing it. But, but even in a sales environment, the consultative sales, um, I, I left the army, went out to Oklahoma and, and started working for a crane company. Um, I, I knew nothing about the, the people, the land or anything out there, but I sort of had my mission. I needed to go sell large contracted um, engineered lifts uh, in refineries and power plants. And so I, I started meeting people and the way the way I would sell and the way I, I go about everything I, I do is is find out what the people need, find out what what's going on. And, and if you have that curiosity, I think the curiosity help sort of drive you into into those doorways and into those offices and into those places where where that's what you're you're asking you're not you're not I, I always joke about the uh, the old vacuum cleaner salesman that would 
you'd open the door and they'd throw a pile of dirt on your rug. And then, then they'd be like, well, let me show you how to clean it up with this new vacuum. And I, I always hated that idea of sales. Like for me, if you don't need a vacuum, I don't want to sell you a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for somebody that needs a vacuum, I, I, I want to tell you why my vacuum will help you and, and it'll, it'll help me and it'll be mutually beneficial. And so that, that led me, that, that approach is, has been what's led me through the private sector as I've, I've gotten out of the army. Uh, like I said, selling, selling engineered lifts uh, to refineries, it's, it's what do you need? And it's, I know they need a crane, right? They, know they need something heavy picked up, but, but why do you need it? And in a refinery, if, if they're down for, I mean, they can measure uh, dollars lost by, by hours of inactivity. And, and if they know that I'm going to save them a, a full 10 hour day, um, that could equal one and a half million dollars of, of saved revenue. And so understanding the why, like what do you, what do you need and why, like how can we be a partner? Uh, and if you can ever partner with people, that that just makes them want to work with you more. And I think that sales approach um, works. And, and same thing now in a management role. Uh, what what do my what do the people that work for me need? Uh, what do my other managers need for me for for them to be successful? And and taking that approach is has allowed allowed me to to do a lot of careers and career paths that I have no family background in. I, I, no one other than my brother has ever joined the army. No one no one in my family's ever worked for a crane company or an equipment company or a, a commercial HVAC company. But but this sort of background and this willingness to try new things and willingness to enter into uncomfortable conversations with people has, has allowed me to be successful within my own right and within fields that I never, I really had no idea I would ever get involved with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is, this is so cool. And I want to talk for a minute about fulfillment. And I, I think I just, I'm going to, I want to connect a couple of chain links that I've, I've kind of picked up in our, in our time today and, and in our time um, in a couple of conversations we had before the podcast, but you know, your mindset always starts with service. And, and what I'm following in this chain is that mindset of service turns you into a partner, which is ultimately a relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And then that, that relationship, that trusted relationship sort of breaks down this barrier and allows you to really connect with people, really get to know them, the different cultures, the different places, which essentially expands your awareness of the world, mm-hmm. which ultimately leads to a more fulfilling life. And so I guess my question for you is like, can you, that that's, that's hypothesis, right? <laughs> can you help me like break that down? And like, you know, how have these experiences that you've had from rivers of the world and Belize to the, to the army, to your service career now, like how has that service mentality led you to a life of fulfillment? It, it, it's, it's funny. We, we refer to the service division as the fulfillment division uh, in our work. Um, but as far as being fulfilled, it, traveling more, understanding how people work around the world has allowed me to understand people better. Uh, it, I think it gives me more patience with people. It allows me to sort of see where they are, or if I don't see where they are, question where they're coming from um, and, and not, not be so quick to assume Again, that that mythology of of what that person wearing wearing that hat or with that sticker on their car, what what that means. It's like they might they might have a different perspective. I wonder what their perspective is. I, I wonder if I can get in a conversation and find out more about that person, so I can I can understand understand how things work. Uh, and th- and that has helped me understand people better. 
I, I still, it's a, a work in progress, but the more individuals you talk to, the more places you've been to, the, the more you understand the nuances of the world. I think the more you really, you feel fulfilled because the world's less of a mystery. Uh, and sometimes that's boring. Uh, again, I, I remember going to special, special forces training and you're waiting for this big, big person to come out of the sky and say, here's, here's the secret to, to doing ambushes, or here's the secret to doing this spe specific tactic. You, you figure in special operations, they're going to, they're going to tell you the secret, but it, it's a lot like my brother teaching me how to do more push-ups. It's used to do more. I used to get better at the technique and, and, and really the secret to special forces or any, any high level talented person is that they've just done it more and they, they've got more reps in. And, and the more I engage with people, uh, the more reps I'm getting in as far as understanding how how people operate in the world and how how many different perspectives and different ways people operate in the world. And when when I can get more reps than anybody else, when I can get more reps just for myself, that that just makes me more of an elite person. There's not there's not a mystery. I'm, I haven't solved anything, um, but I've got a lot of experience. And I, I think that's that's the secret for me to have that build life, but also to to help people in, in more ways. Uh, than I, I realize, and that, that's to meet them where they are, to learn learn how they think and learn how they operate in the world. Well, I also feel like I want to just point out that like I see an intense curiosity in you too, and I feel like that curiosity is a driver for all of this. This this whole like showing up and saying, "What do you need?" It's not. It's because you're curious and you want to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you got to you you've got to want to do something different if you're. Even if you're going to the beach, uh, just go go to a local local dive. Find like even even if that's all you can do is like you're going to a new place. Find a local establishment. Don't we're not going to shame McDonald's for being uh, so well well traveled around the world. But don't don't eat at McDonald's in Edinburgh. Don't don't go to the beach and get Wendy's. Like <laughs> don't don't go to IHOP. Find find a local dive. Uh, but be curious in that sense. And that's. That, that's something I've always tried to do. Like I said, try and try and sort of analyze the world uh, one bit of data at a time. You, you just need more more data to better understand it. So that, that's I think you're absolutely right. I, I'm very curious about how the world works and how I can fit into it. Yeah, that's great. You know, I and I mentioned again in the in the intro, but I I'm I'm somebody that studies personal growth. I lead read lots of books, and I, you know, and it's there's all kinds of quotes you can find on Google about how the meaning and purpose of life is service. And mm -hmm. sometimes it is kind of hard to wrap your head around that, but to just spend time with you and and hear your stories, and it, you know, it helps it helps like really bring the experience together and. And I, and I hope that uh, that those listening have have been able to feel that through your stories as well. Um, so just as we kind of wrap up here, I'm just curious what advice you have for people that, you know, are intrigued by this sort of curiosity that you have, this voice inside that calls to adventure, but but maybe they experience their own sort of fears and doubts. Maybe they have their own mythologies. Like what advice would you have for people that that want to get after it and and start experiencing more adventure? And just do it, not not to steal steal from Nike, but yep. but you you've just got to you got to raise your hand, volunteer. I was I was out of shape and 27 years old when I joined the and well, I joined the army and went to basic training. Um, I was in my 30s when I went to the Q course uh, for special operations, and so 
you've got to raise your hand. Uh, you you got to recognize that you're you are a leader. You are a person. Um, you're going to experience new things, and no one's going to do it for you. Like I said, take it, take advantage of the fact that it's you're you're the only one that's going to make make you enjoy this event uh, or this this activity or or challenge yourself. I said no. If you're if you're going to wait for somebody to come in and and do it for you, you're you're going to be waiting your whole life. So take take advantage of whatever whatever you can. Get an MBA when you're 41. Uh, go back to school. Like I said there. Just don't don't give up. Be be as young in your mind as you want to be. That that may be the title of this episode. No one's going to do it for you. I love it. All right. So <laughs> you know you've lived this epic life. You've had all these awesome experiences all over the world, and eventually Hollywood's going to pick up on this, Nick, and they're going to make a movie about you. And so when they do, I want to know who the actor is going to be that's going to play you in your movie. Probably Matt Damon. Yes. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been told I look like uh, Peyton Manning, but I don't think his his bona fides are quite the Matt Damon. Matt Matt's played a, a goofy guy that bought a zoo. He's he's played a soldier, Jason Bourne, whatever whatever grandiose person. That's true. Like. He can do it. I yeah, like so that. That's a that's a good one. I'm I'm into that. I'm gonna watch. That. And what's the movie gonna be called? Probably Beasley with a Z. That was in basic training. I was. Like I, ironically, I think I had a distant cousin in the bunk next to me, which was Beasley with an S. And so all, all through basic training, it was Beasley with a Z or Beasley with an S. Like that, that, that was that was my name in basic training. So so Too if for anything, to, just so people know how to spell Beasley the right or wrong way, however you want to say <laughs> Beasley with a Z. I love it. Well, Nick, thank you so much for spending time with me today. This was hugely inspiring. It's a great way to to kind of kick off the the new year. And um, I just really appreciate you. Once again, thank you for your service to our country. And for those listening, I hope that you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Nick's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure, because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or you need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thank you for listening. Nick, thank you so much for being here. Scott, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.